Welcome to the Jesus Christ, Our Savior and Redeemer podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums that testify of Christ's teachings, His life, ministry, and mission, and His sacred atonement. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Brothers and sisters, uh, Sister Burton and I are delighted to be with you this evening. We are grateful to the First Presidency for this assignment, though we feel overwhelmed both by the weight of the assignment and the technology that allows us to join together while being physically gathered in a host of locations. We have enjoyed a wonderful holiday season and trust that each of you has experienced a joyful one as well. If you're like I am, you'll find it's always difficult to go back to school or back to work after a long holiday period. But over the last 45 days or so, we have enjoyed a period of thanksgiving. We've also celebrated a period of acknowledging the births of the Son of Man and the prophet of the Restoration, Joseph Smith. We have survived with little or no inconvenience the much-discussed Y2K phenomenon. In the aftermath of this event, some people seem to be glad and relieved it's over, while others are a bit sad and disappointed that it turned out to be largely a $100 billion non-event. We have concluded a year and are a few days into a new one. That's just about long enough for most of us to have violated our New Year's resolutions. I think it's best to leave to others the debate as to whether we have concluded a decade, a century, or a millennium. I'll just note that the controversy is not new. 200 years ago, in 1799, the Times of London declared that the 19th century began in the year 1801 rather than the year 1800, and in typical British fashion said, It is a silly and childish discussion and only exposes the want of brains of those who maintain a contrary opinion. (laughs) Now, despite that stinging statement, I'll risk exposing my mental frailties by indicating that I find it easier to, quote, go with the media flow, unquote, and adopt the odometer approach to the issue. When the number turns from 999, to one zero zero zero, I say, let the celebration begin. Besides, what's wrong with having two millennium parties? (laughs) The media have bombarded us with the results of polls designed to identify the best and the worst of almost everything. For example, we've recently learned that Albert Einstein made the most important contribution to mankind during the past century and Michael Jordan was the century's best athlete. Frankly, we've learned more about the best and worst and most and least and top and bottom than I suspect we ever really wanted to know. We have been inundated with trivia and comparative statistics. I'm sure that the cockles of your hearts have been warmed by the vital information that nearly 60% of Americans of all ages eat peanut butter at least once a week and that a full 83% of those who eat peanut butter prefer the smooth variety. 
I was interested to read that the alumni of a prestigious university that will remain <clears throat> undisclosed voted Bill Gates, a college dropout, the best business leader of the past 75 years. They also identified the automobile as the most important consumer product of the period, ex explaining that the internal combustion engine beats the personal computer system windows as an operating system by a mile. They gave the computer the nod for the best business innovation, and Microsoft is the most influential company. These same alumni selected tragic World War II as the most significant event of the century because of the impact it had on most all segments of life on this planet. Of much greater importance, this same group of intellectually upscale alumni were asked to make two forecasts. The first, what will be better 25 years from today <clears throat> than it is now? The second, what will be worse than we experience today? As to what they thought would be better, they identified race relations, health care, education, and the environment. I'm sure we all look forward to these much-needed improvements in society. However, they thought that the next quarter century would see a further loss of confidence in government, an increased economic disparity between the rich and the poor, and a continuation of the already precipitous decline in values and morality. If the forecast proved to be accurate, the predicted declines are very worrisome, worrisome indeed. Many would say, however, that values and morality for a large segment of society have already hit rock bottom levels. I'm certainly not clairvoyant, nor do I have the solutions for all the maladies that plague society and mankind today. But I go back to a popular song of my youth. It is a song popularized at that time by a female vocalist whom the vast majority of you wonderful young people neither know of nor have ever heard sing. Her name was Rose, is Rosemary Clooney. The song is entitled, What the World Needs Now. The lyrics of that song explain that what the world needs now is love, sweet love. To that beautiful line of lyric, I add, what the world needs now is love, sweet love, for the good news of Jesus Christ. Certainly, if we allow the gospel of our Savior and Redeemer to penetrate our souls, there will be no need to be concerned with forecasts of further declines in values and morals. And there will be no poor among us. We will have confidence and faith in those who represent us in government. In fact, values and morality will be celestial. I recently read with great interest a biographical article in the October 11th, 1999 edition of Time magazine. The article in Death Throat was written by Robert Hughes, an art critic for, critic for Time, it seems that Mr. Hughes was in Australia when he was involved in a devastating head-on automobile accident on a remote highway in Western Australia. Charlie Fishhook, an Aborigine, came upon the accident scene and sounded the critical alarm for help. A friend, Danny O'Sullivan, upon hearing of the accident, 
used his radio and cell phone to summon help from the nearest town. He then raced to Robert's side to reassure him that assistance was on its way. Aborigines of the Bidyadanga people formed a semicircle around the wrecked car and chanted a prayerful song. A Filipina nurse from the Bidyadanga settlement comforted his badly broken body until police and medics airlifted him to the Royal Perth Medical Center. Skilled physicians operated for 13 hours to carefully restore his body. His loving and deeply concerned family arrived from the United States to keep vigil until he awoke from a 30-day coma. Robert Hughes, in writing about his near-death experience, said, and I quote, I am a skeptic to whom the idea that a benign God created us and watches over us is, as, is somewhere between a fairy story and a poor joke. People of a religious heart are apt under such conditions to see the familiar images of a near-death experience, the tunnel of white light with Jesus beckoning at the end, as featured in the memories of a score of American Kmart mystics. Jesus must have been busy when my turn came. He didn't show. There was, as far as I could tell, absolutely nothing divine on the other side. Well, several weeks later, after Robert's story appeared, several letters to the editor of Time magazine were received and published. A perceptive gentleman by the name of Pedro Costa from Portugal wrote, wishing to ask Robert the following question. He said, I would like to ask Robert Hughes if he didn't see Christ among that Aborigine family that found him, the Bidyadanga people who chanted to keep him alive, the Filipina nurse who wept for him, his friend Danny who raced to save his life, the police and the medics who got to the scene, the medical personnel who decided to fly into Royal Perth Hospital, people who operated for 13 hours or in the midst of relatives, friends who gave him the support and the affection he talks about in his article. Hughes just must have missed Jesus in such a crowd. From Stellenbosch, South Africa, Marius J. DeWall profoundly wrote, Robert Hughes said of his near-death experience that Jesus didn't show. But one cannot expect to find Christ in death if one has not known him in life. We know our loving Father in heaven and our Savior Jesus Christ most often minister to our needs through the efforts of typical garden variety people like you and me. We too often look for the dramatic divine intervention in our lives and lose sight of Jesus in the crowd of marvelous, kind, thoughtful, and generous people who live the principles of the gospel of him who is our savior and our redeemer. Mr. DeWall so gently reminds us that this mortal life is the time for us to find, serve, and know Jesus and the principles he taught in life. We will undoubtedly find it difficult to identify with Christ in death if we have not known him in life. 
I am reminded of the well-worn and often told story of a little crippled boy who ran a small newsstand in a crowded railroad station. Every day he would sell his papers, candy, gum, and magazines to the thousands of commuters passing through the terminal. One evening during the rush hour, two men were running to catch their train. One was a few paces ahead of the other. The first man in his great haste turned a corner and ran directly into the crippled little fellow, scattering his candy, gum, and newspapers under the feet of the many passers-by. He cursed the boy for being in his way and without further ado, continued on to catch his train. The second commuter came upon the scene scant seconds later. He gently picked up the boy, gathered up the scattered inventory, pulled a $5 bill from his pocket and gave it to the boy while saying, I think this will take care of what may have been lost or soiled. The kindly man picked up his briefcase and started to run to catch his train. As he did, the little crippled boy called out loudly with great emotion, Mister, Mister. As the man stopped and turned, the boy asked, Are you Jesus Christ? Trying to overcome his embarrassment, the man smiled and responded, No, son, I'm not Jesus, but I'm trying to do what he would do if he were here. Mr. Hughes may not have been able to detect the Savior among the many who ministered to his needs, nor is he likely to find Christ in death without knowing him in life. But this little crippled boy readily recognized the Christ-like demeanor of one of Jesus' disciples. I am convinced that we can find, know, and experience the tender, unconditional love of Jesus of Nazareth as we serve him by serving our fellow men. Over the centuries, people have been introduced to the Savior in many different ways. For the Apostle Paul, it was during the miracle which occurred on the road to Damascus. The great Greek civilization was introduced to Christian concepts by Philip. Many have come to know Christ as they have been exposed to the written testaments of Book of Mormon prophets. Still others are extended introductions by legions of missionaries who labor with devotion. Neighbors feel the Savior's presence as their souls are softened by the kindly deeds of others. Caregivers come to feel the warm glow of the gospel of Jesus as they unselfishly minister, often for extended periods, to the needs of family members and friends. For some, Crisis and disaster encourage them to reach for the security blanket offered by him who offers perfect consolation. For most people, the discovery of Jesus comes by the method he authored himself. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. And, quote, seek me diligently and ye shall find me, unquote. Early in the ministry of the Savior, he and some of his disciples were traveling from Jerusalem to Galilee. At about noonday, they found refuge from the heat, dust, and thirst of their travels at a well in Samaria. As the disciples sought nourishment in a nearby town, Jesus was alone at the well. He was joined by a Samaritan woman who had come to draw water. Interesting dialogue occurred between Jesus and the woman. Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. 
Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, ask drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou would have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well and drank thereof himself, and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whoso drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whoso drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. It is this living water freely offered by Jesus Christ that we all seek to quench our own spiritual thirst and that which is critically needed to end the gospel drought that continues to plague mankind. As his disciples, we are the primary distribution system for delivering the living water from its everlasting source to his cherished children in need. We largely determine who will receive the water as we, by our service, control the irrigation system headgates. We preserve the purity of the water as we reflect to the world the value of living water in our own lives. If we irrigate when the living water is required rather than when it is convenient for us, we determine its vitality. It is only the living water of Jesus Christ that can and will bring a happy, successful, and everlasting life to the children of men. I spend a fair amount of time on airplanes. When I make a reservation, I always request an aisle seat. More often than not, there's another person seated between me and the window of the plane. Airplane talk is most often very general in its nature, but one of the questions that traveling companions usually get around to is, what do you do for a living? When asked, I usually respond in a kind of a matter-of-fact way by saying, oh, thanks for asking. I'm in the business of saving souls. <laughs> Usually a questioning expression comes upon their face. Some respond by asking me to repeat my statement while they think about a suitable response, while others readily ask for an explanation. It's a marvelous opportunity to have a gospel-centered conversation with someone who, because they are enclosed between me and the window, find it nearly impossible to move away. <laughs> but think about it, my young brothers and sisters. By virtue of our membership in his church, are we not all in the business of saving souls? Of course we are. First, it's our responsibility to save our own, and we are then to assist our neighbors to do the same by offering them the living water of Jesus Christ. Over the years, 
I have expressed a desire to have been present when special events in the ecclesiastical history of the world have taken place. To be standing behind a large tree in the sacred grove when the father and son appeared to young Joseph Smith would have been a supernal experience. To be present in the Kirtland Temple to witness the restoration of the holy priesthood to Joseph and Oliver would have been, a marvelous, have been marvelous. To have been present among the eleven apostles in Gethsemane while Jesus petitioned his father one last time would have been, to use current terminology, awesome. In like fashion, I would have dearly loved to have trod the dusty road of Judea, Galilee, and Perea to sit at the feet of the Savior as the master teacher taught with the aid of parables. During his earthly ministry, Jesus often used these thought-provoking short stories to convey a moral or a spiritual truth. The short stories used real scenes or events which occur in nature or human life. Jesus' parables depicted true life situations and have a vigorous moral and religious application. Understanding of parables come with some contemplation. Certainly, Jesus was not argumentative. His teachings were delivered with strength of plainness and simplicity. You'll recall that when the haughty, self-righteous Pharisees re recalled the false doctrines and Jewish traditions of more than a thousand years, Jesus most often introduced his rebuttal with the simple phrase, I say. To the humble seekers after truth, he was gentle, even willing to dispense his living water with patience and simplicity. To the question, who is my neighbor? He responded with the forceful and absolutely clear parable of the Good Samaritan. When repentance, mercy, or forgiveness needed to be taught, parables about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son were eloquently presented. The New Testament records approximately 44 of the Savior's parables. We know not the depth of the reservoir of parables the Savior used, but we know that the disciples who consistently followed and traveled with him and who over the time gained a degree of gospel sophistication wondered why he repeatedly used simple parables. After hearing the parable of the sower, they inquired, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Therefore speak I unto them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. If it were more important for the disciples of Jesus to partake of the living water by understanding the principles presented in parable form, then perhaps we should consider it important as well, as we minister in a Christ-like way. Let me whet your appetite for parables by mentioning just a few. In the 15th chapter of Luke, the master teacher counsels us about bringing living water to those who are lost. Luke records that a great multitude made up of publicans, sinners, Pharisees, and scribes gathered around the Savior. He took the opportunity to use parable and metaphors to teach the rather hostile group. He said, What man of you? 
having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it. And when he hath found it, he layeth on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Without wasting words, Luke goes from lost sheep to a lost piece of silver in recording another of Jesus' teachings. Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. She, like the shepherd, then rejoices with her neighbors. The Savior concludes his teaching with a widely quoted parable of the prodigal son. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided them. We all know that with his agency, this young man managed to spend all he had been given in riotous living and then returned to seek forgiveness, all to the dismay of his older brother, a brother who had remained in the service of his father. The father, counseling the faithful son, said, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead, and is alive again, and was lost and is found. In perhaps the most personal of his parables, the Savior identified himself with the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the homeless, the sick, and the imprisoned. I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. So many of our Father's children are burdened with earthly cares, with the stain of sin, poverty, pain, disability, and loneliness, bereavement, rejection. The living water of Jesus is sure and certain to those who find him and trust him. He who stilled the winds and waves can bring peace to the repentant sinner. We are his agents. and We are not only to declare his word, but also to deliver the living water unto the least of his brethren, just as he himself would have done if he were here. A liar chose to challenge the Savior on a point of doctrine. Attempting attempting to entrap Jesus, he asked, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responded with a question of his own. What is written in the law? How readest thou? The response of the liar, as recited from the law, was perfect. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus acknowledged the answer and then replied, This do, and thou shalt live. Having failed to confound the master, the liar seemed embarrassed. He sought justification by making a further inquiry. And who is my neighbor? We should be very grateful for the liar's second question. From it came one of the most insightful of the Savior's parables. You remember the setting. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. 
which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him, leaving him half dead. Since our very primary days, we have heard about this certain man. We continue to wonder at the failure of the priest and the Levite to render aid, and we say, surely I would have helped, surely I would have stopped, surely I would not have looked the other way. The parable continues, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Upon completing the parable, the Savior asked the liar, Which now of these three was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? The liar quickly identified the one who had shown mercy, the kind and caring traveler from Samaria. Jesus admonished him to go and do thou likewise. During his ministry, the Savior used two wonderful parables regarding the requirement that we develop our God-given talents. The parable of the entrusted talents was given directly to his apostles. The Savior told about a man who was leaving on a long trip and wanted to distribute his possessions to his servants. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. Each man he gave according to his ability. You remember the story. While the master was away, the one who received five talents put them to use and made five more talents. The one who received two talents put them to use and made two more talents. But the one who received one talent hid it in the ground. Upon his return, the giver of the talents called for an accounting. Under the servants who had doubled their talents, the master said, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. To the servant who hid his talents and did not multiply it, the one talent was taken from him and given to the servant who had ten talents. The parable of the pounds was given to a mixed multitude on the Savior's last journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. Although there are some differences in the two parables, in essence they teach the same truths and principles. From the men endowed with many talents, more was expected than from the men with lesser talents. Yet all were expected to multiply whatever they were given. However, in each parable, although relatively little was expected from the men given one talent, each failed to use his talent. And on the part of the men given one talent, it was just as important and necessary as on the part of the men given two and five talents. Though we have put the past Christmas season to bed, may I share a modern parable entitled The Parable of the Shopper. A woman had been shopping all day long, and when the bus for which she was waiting finally arrived, it was packed with tired shoppers. She sat down in the only vacant seat next to a handsome gentleman who politely helped her arrange her many packages. After some jovial conversation among the passengers, the gentleman began speaking in a quiet, melodious voice deepened with experience. Pointing to the packages on the woman's lap, he said in a loud voice, Hear now the parable of the shopper. He began, A woman went forth to shop, and as she shopped, she carefully planned. 
the hard-earned money was divided and the appropriate purchases made with joy and delight that is only known to a giver. Later, as the packages were opened, the faces of the receivers were scanned. What a lovely sweater, said the eldest daughter, but I would have preferred blue. The boy expressed appreciation for a cassette player, but to his sister he indicated that he had asked for one with an automatic reverse and an extra speaker. He complained that he never got what he wanted. The youngest little girl complained about her rag doll, saying she really wanted a china doll. The father of the children ignored his present, saying he was too busy to open it at the moment. How sad it is, continued the soft, beautiful voice, when gifts are not received in the same spirit they are given. To reject a thoughtful gift is to reject the loving sentiment of the giver. And yet, are we not all sometimes guilty of rejecting? The handsome man lifted a present into the air while offering it to a rough-looking teenage boy. Then he pretended to read the accompanying card. To you I give my life, lived perfectly as an example so that you might see the pattern and live worthily to return with me again, signed, Merry Christmas from the Messiah. The gift of example is a precious yet often rejected gift. Holding up a pure white present, the man indicated to a worn-looking woman dressed in her slim black skirt, black tights and heels that the, that present was for her. She read the card out loud and allowed her tears to slip without shame down her painted face. It read, My gift to you is repentance. I wish you to know for certain that though your sins be scarlet, they shall be as white as snow, and I, the Lord, will remember them no more. Signed, Your Advocate with the Father. Repentance something every Christian needs. The largest package was a big red one. It was offered to a ragged, unkept little child. The card was read for the child. It said, My gift to you is love. My love is pure. It is not dependent on what you do or what you look like. I love you as you are, as you have been, as you are now, and as you will be in the future. From your brother, Jesus. To a lady sitting close by, a silver package with a bow was extended. This precious gift to you is the gift of salvation, the surety that you will rise from the grave and live again with a perfect resurrected body. The card read, I give this gift freely to you and to all men by laying down my life for you. Signed, your Savior. The man said one final gift the greatest gift of all the gifts of God, eternal life. But though this gift is to be given to all men, it must be assembled. The instructions are given in the scriptures, and he held up a well-used book. The bus stopped, and the tall gentleman walked down the aisle. He paused as he reached the front of the bus and said, One last gift. Peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, giveth I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. 
With these words, he was gone. How we receive these gifts, these precious gifts of the babe of Bethlehem, is the telling point. Are we exchangers? Is there really anything else we would rather have? Is there a feature missing? It is what we do with the gift long after we have opened it that shows our appreciation. Have we used it? Have we worn it, displayed it, or cherished it? How do you suppose Christ must feel when we don't even take time to use his gift of repentance, the one he purchased with such a great price? How sad it is when gifts are not received in the same spirit they are given. Principles taught by parable, if learned well and followed, help us to be dispensers of the living water of Jesus Christ. President Hinckley reminds us that given what we have and what we know, we ought to be better people than we are. We ought to be more Christ-like, more forgiving, more helpful, considerate to all around, to all around us. <clears throat> the following little verse reminds us of simple, everyday things we can do to be sensitive to the needs of others. The scriptures remind us that it is by doing the small and simple things well that souls are saved. A little poem by Maud Preston entitled Sharing. There isn't much that I can do, but I can share my bread with you, and I can share my joy with you, and sometimes share a sorrow too, as on our way we go. There isn't much that I can do, but I can sit an hour with you, and I can share a story with you, and sometimes share reverses too, as on our way we go. There isn't much that I can do, but I can share my flowers with you, and I can share my books with you and sometimes share your burdens too, as on our way we go. There isn't much that I can do, but I can share my songs with you, and I can share my mirth with you, and sometimes come and laugh with you, as on our way we go. There isn't much that I can do, but I can share my hopes with you, and I can share my fears with you, and sometimes shed some tears with you, as on our way we go. There isn't much that I can do, but I can share my friends with you, and I can share my life with you, and oftentimes share a prayer with you, as on our way we go. You may remember the story of the ship's captain who had a problem accepting help. One night at sea, this captain saw what looked like another ship heading directly toward him. He had his signalman blink to the other ship. Change your course 10 degrees south. The reply came back, change your course 10 degrees north. The ship's captain answered, I am a captain, change your course south. To which the reply came, well, I am a seaman, first class, change your course north. This so infuriated the captain, he signaled back, I say change your course south. I am on a battleship. To which the reply came back, and I say change your course north. I am in a lighthouse. Like the poor ship's captain, my young, brothers and, my young brothers and sisters, there are many who desperately need the living water of Jesus to nourish their souls, but they do not realize it. Unless they are assisted in changing their course, they may find themselves shipwrecked upon the shoals of life. 
President Hinckley said, quote, the time has now come to turn about and face the future. This is a season of a thousand opportunities. It is ours to grasp and move forward. What a wonderful time it is for each of us to do his or her small part in moving the work of the Lord on to its magnificent destiny. May we enthusiastically respond to the needs of the downtrodden, rejoice in the repentant soul, magnify and use our talents to bless lives, identify with the hungry and bring peace to the sinner. May we be worthy vessels to represent him in doing unto the least of our brothers and sisters that which he would himself would do were he now here. The apostles and prophets of our time have recently published to the world their testimony of the living Christ. I use their words and join with them in their testament that, quote, Jesus is the living Christ, the immortal Son of God. He is the great King Emmanuel who stands today on the right hand of his Father. He is the light, the life, and the hope of the world. His way is the path that leads to happiness in this life and the eternal life in the world to come. God be thanked for the matchless gift of his divine Son. Unquote. Of this great truth, I too testify in the holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You've been listening to the Jesus Christ, Our Savior and Redeemer podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on overcoming adversity by study and by faith. Come follow me, Love and Marriage, and the Prophet Joseph Smith. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.